All right. Well, if you are um, new, we have been, uh, we're in Revelation, and actually we, we are in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, and we kind of paused uh, because Revelation 24 through 6 is the only real m- mentioning in Revelation of this thousand-year kingdom of Christ reigning here on earth. And we saw in that, uh, really, the, this it's kind of gives us a glimpse of the beginning and the end, and that's all it says, and then it moves on to what happens after the thousand-year kingdom. Um, and so I just thought I wanted to, to, to pause there for a second and just do a real quick three-week kind of just flyover of the whole Bible and to show some of the wonderful things that the Lord has uh, revealed in His Word about this time period uh, when Christ is reigning on earth, when uh, He is... There, there's many things that, that the Lord has promised us uh, that both Christ must do and must transpire here on this planet before the new heavens and the new earth that hasn't happened yet, um, and it must happen um, and especially, you know, we talked about um, if you read the Bible with the same hermeneutic all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, then you can't, you can't take these things and make some of them allegorical, some of them spiritual, but then think some of them are physical and, and actually happen the way he says it. Whatever the Lord says he's going to do, he's going to do. And so the things we haven't seen, those are just things that haven't happened yet. The things we have seen, are the, you can, it gives you an understanding of how he does fulfill prophecy. When he says he's going to do something, he'll, he'll you know... Uh, have uh, he'll name nations and kings and and even give us timing sometimes and all the things that have happened historically we can see and he did it exactly like he said he would do it but then everything that has not happened we all we we go there's either two ways to look at it you allegoricalize it you look at it you think well it's going to be spiritual and you yeah and you and you make it then that it, it you know reinterpret it um or you you say that the church has replaced israel and all the blessings for israel or all the curses went to israel to the church, but that doesn't make sense if you read scripture because he very specifically says that he will bless Israel with all the blessings that he's proclaimed to them. And so, and he hasn't. Uh, there's no way to say that God has done for Israel what he said he would do for Israel. And so, here in Revelation, he gives us the revelation of Jesus Christ, and all of Revelation uh, is, is pointing towards what he will do for Israel during the tribulation and then during the millennial kingdom. And so, I thought this, was good, this would be a good time in the middle of these three verses, to just go back real quick and let's look at the Old Testament and see what does he say. It's not just the Old Testament. Christ himself uh, talks about some of these blessings as well. But uh, in the Old Testament, you see a bunch of these promises. So last week, and then today, uh, this, is, this is what was hard too. It's hard to be selective, and it's hard to go, where are we going to land and what are we going to talk about? Because there's more, I mean, you could just study this forever. And, and you need to. Read the Old Testament. Read the whole Word of God. And just see what he says, because it is... Mind-blowing and amazing. And you can't read it enough. You can read it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it never, you never exhaust the depth of, and the greatness of it. It, it never becomes, uh, uh, what am I, it, it, it's always mind-blowing uh, every time you read it. So as I was doing this, I was going to just talk about different kingdom promises that the Lord has said. That he, uh, things that he said about this time period that he must do. Uh, and the more I just was, I was looking at Isaiah, I was looking at Daniel, I was looking at uh, Zechariah and Ezekiel, and I just thought, there's so much just in Ezekiel alone. That I thought this would be a good place to just land today. Let's just look at the, the, the last third of Ezekiel together. So I hope you have your Bibles, because a lot of it's just going to be, you're going to have to open the Bible and read together with me. Uh, but we're just going to look at one book and a lot of the things that he promised in this one book of the Old Testament uh, that must take place. 
so, oh, this is our schedule, by the way, real quick. So we'll do this today. Jeff Horn will be here next week giving an update on the mission uh, him, when him, he and Shane went to Kenya. And then just talking about our job as, as uh, kingdom citizens of Christ here on earth to share the gospel uh, to mandate and uh, the, uh, the mandate we have to herald the, the word of, of our king here on earth. And then on December 4th, we'll do one more description of kingdom conditions. And what I think I'm going to actually land there on is just looking at Isaiah and just look at what Isaiah says and just give you some of the highlights. But also is going to say, uh, any questions you have, that's going to be part of that too. So if you want to, um, on that day, I'm going to give you some stuff and then you can ask questions on the spot. If you can ask ahead of time, it helps me to prepare and to, to you know, I can investigate and look and dive in. I mean, on the spot's fine too, but I can only tell you what I can remember and what I know from what I've studied so far. But, you know, so if you want to ask a question like, so what are the guilt offerings in the Millennial Temple and who does those? Like, I mean, that'd be great to maybe ask ahead of time. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, that's uh, December 4th. Mark Watts will be here for a couple of weeks while I'm out of town on the 11th and the 18th. And then we have no Sunday school those two weeks. And we're back on January 8th into Revelation. Satan will be released. And we'll talk about uh, what all that means. So a little overview of what we did. Uh, like I said, two weeks ago, we looked at these verses. Basically, I just called this a glimpse of the millennial kingdom. It talks about the resurrection of the tribulation saints at the beginning. They reign, rule of Christ for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, there is a, another resurrection, which is what we'll talk about when we get there in, that, or, uh, on, on, in January. Um, but basically, this is the, the first three times he mentions this thousand-year period of Christ reigning on earth. And, and we said, like I said, there's a lot in the Old Testament that talks about this period, but it's not until Revelation 20 that we find a, a, a time stamp on it, that it will be a thousand years. And like I said, six times he talks about being a thousand years, and then there's no reason to believe that it's uh, any more or less than a thousand years um, uh, in the way that... Uh, the, Numbers are used in the Bible and the way that John uses number in Revelation. There's no reason to look at it as symbolic. Uh, last week we talked about the six biblical covenants of the Bible and how all of these talk about things that Christ must do or God must do and he's going to do through Christ. And a lot of these things have not transpired in the way that he proclaimed that they would. And so uh, these things must happen during the millennial reign of Christ when he's on earth. And, and we specifically looked at the Abrahamic, priestly, and Davidic and New Covenant last week and the things that God said that he would do uh, through those covenants. And all those covenants point to Christ. Uh, they all talk about Christ, the seed that will come from Abraham, the, the son of David that will reign on the throne, the one that will give them a new heart and a new spirit, and it's his spirit. Um, and, so, and these things, God has already uh, begun, if you want to say that. They've, they've all been ratified, but none of them have been completed. None of them have been fully fulfilled. There's many things that God has spoken about in all these covenants that he must do. And so I said, studying the covenants of the Bible is very helpful to understand the whole plan and counsel of God. There's a few things like that that you can look at the Bible. You can look at the covenants. You can look at the glory of God, trace that all the way through. You can look at the kingdom of God, trace that all the way through. And, and those are things that God reveals and shows what he is doing and how he's going to do it. Uh, throughout uh, the, the, the history of creation. And so I was telling you, like I always told my kids, the, the way to learn the biblical covenants is Nam Puddin, just N-A-M-P-D-N, and then uh, that you Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Priestly, Davidic, and New. And then those are just kind of the, the highlights of the things that the Lord has promised that he will do. He will give Israel a land, a piece of property that he actually tells the, the rivers and the, the borders, and he says forever. There'll be a nation forever. All of the earth will be blessed through them forever. Uh, we know that that's going to happen through Christ, but there's actual land 
land promises, the nation must exist forever. Uh, we talked about the Mosaic covenant. Uh, God made a covenant with Israel. And all these other than the Mosaic are unilateral, um, unconditional covenants made by God. And God himself has sworn to do things. And it's not conditioned on what other people do. He said, I'll do I'll, the land. I'm giving you this land forever. He calls it his land forever. He makes a nation out of the people of Israel and says it's his nation forever. And all the earth will be blessed through Israel, and he himself will be the one that blesses all the earth through Israel. Um, but the Mosaic Covenant is the one that is conditional, that if Israel obeys, God will bless them in these ways. If they disobey, he will curse them. He calls it the blessings and the curse. And, uh, and so, um, and, and through that, we, we see not only many of the sacrificial system, things like that, the point. But we also, it gives us an understanding of what the Lord is doing right now because Israel has rejected their Messiah and rejected his law and rejected his commands that there has been a partial hardening of Israel for a time for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in, which is where we're at right now, the time of the Gentiles, the time of the church. Uh, but there will be a time when that, that age will be over, that the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and God will remember all of the promises that he made to Abraham and to David and to Yes, uh, and these things must take place. Talk about the priestly covenant, that there must be uh, a priestly line through the descendants of Phineas, and then we looked at that. Uh, it, it goes through Zadok, who was the priest during the time of David, um, that was faithful during the time of David when all the other Levites went astray. Um, and we're going we're gonna to see that actually play out in Ezekiel. Uh, the Davidic covenant, that God will establish his house and his kingdom and his throne forever. It's both the kingdom of David and the, king, or the, the, the kingdom throne and house of God forever. And then the new covenant, that he'll forgive sin, that he'll put his spirit within. Uh, and again, if you keep reading what the new covenant says, that they will not need to teach one another. All of them will know him. Uh, they will never stray from him again. They will never follow idols again. They will fully love him, fully know him, fully obey him forever, specifically Israel and Judah, which of course has not happened at all today. Even, even our uh, taste of the new covenant, being born again through the blood of Jesus Christ, being forgiven of sin and having his spirit within us, even that is not to the extent that he has said that he will do uh, in um, uh, Jeremiah 33 or Ezekiel 36. Uh, so all that being said, or 31. So all that being said, there are we have tasted many of these things. He's ratified all of these things. These things have begun, but none of them have been completed. And they must be. He, he, he has to do what he says he's going to do. And so, like we said last week, the, the, the time that that's going to happen is during this thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And then we ended with this last week, Jeremiah 33 and Romans 11. Uh, in Jeremiah, I feel like they're the same thing in both Testaments. Jeremiah 33, God goes through the list of covenants, the Davidic, the New, uh, the Priestly, the Noahic Covenant, and he says, nothing will stop me from, from doing these things. Nothing. And, and this is as he's destroying uh, Jerusalem. Just Jerusalem is getting wiped off the map. The temple is gone. The throne is gone. No king has sat on David's throne since. Even the temple that was rebuilt was never filled with the glory of God again. And the things that were done in the temple weren't done in the same way afterwards. So there's many things that must take place. And as he's wiping Israel off the map because of their disobedience and, and, uh, and, and fulfilling what he said he would do through the curse, he tells them, I'm not finished. I will do everything that I've sworn to do. And he names the covenants. And then in Romans 11, Paul rearticulates the same concept and says, has God forgotten his people of Israel? May it never be. Uh, and, and he basically explains that uh, now is a time of a partial hardening of the people of Israel. But he says, but all the nation, all, the whole nation, uh, will, uh, he, will, he will save the people of Israel. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. So 
All that being said, I know it was a lot. It was just a, it was a lot of content for one week. It's just one of those things that just go dig it out yourself. I mean, go study the covenants of the Bible and just look at what the Lord says. And you'll never, you'll never exhaust that, that study. So today, I want to take you to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, and then we're going to look at just really just the last third of Ezekiel because there are some amazing things here. And I'm not going to answer all your questions here today. There's things that, again, you can study this. Uh, I read three different commentaries. I listened to a, a guy preach through this whole thing. Uh, men that are like-minded in their hermeneutic. We're not talking about allegorical interpretations, spiritual interpretations, covenantal theology. I mean, just throw that out the window. We're talking about like they, we st- stand on the same uh, hermeneutic all the way through, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. We all believe in the literal coming of Christ. All these things are literal interpretations. Even within that camp, there's guys that are like, I think this is what that's going to look like, and guys that think I, this is what... And that's where you go, you just got to look at it and go, God will do exactly what he says here. And we can land on something that we believe is it most likely what that will look like, and at the same time go, but we'll see. <laughs> you know, when it happens, we'll go, oh, that's what he meant right there. That's it. So um, anyway, like I said, so if we, uh, when we look at some of these things, you just, you got to leave room for the Lord to do what the Lord is going to do uh, during this time. So open your Bibles to Ezekiel, really Ezekiel 33. And we're just going to look through his word together today. I'm going to do a lot of reading from Ezekiel today. Um, and we're not going to be able to read the whole thing, go through the whole thing, but there's just so much here that would be great to, like I said, to, to read this on your own, study this on your own. There's a lot of detailed information in Ezekiel about the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth. And there's many kingdom promises in the Old Testament. Like I said, I mean, you can start in Genesis, go all the way through Malachi, you'll find so much there uh, about the kingdom of God. Um, but all that being said, uh, the prophecies as as... God is at that place of fulfilling what he said in the Mosaic Covenant about the curses that Israel would, uh, would, would, they would bring upon themselves in their disobedience. As he's about to wipe them out, a lot of these prophets right there at the end tell us a ton about what God will do. And it makes sense. Because as it looks like God is being unfaithful to his word, as it looks like from the human standpoint that God cannot do what he said he would do, uh, as it looks like God is actually destroying the very ones he said he would bless, God reiterates his intent to fulfill all that he said he would do. It's just a matter of when and how. Basically, it's, it's his timing and his plan. And so if you read... Uh, many of the royal psalms, if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, you get a lot about this time period that we're talking about here. And like I said, we have no, I mean, we, we, could, we, could, we could hover here for a long time and just do a millennial kingdom study. But I just wanted to expose you, really, just briefly, to some of the things that uh, Ezekiel says uh, so that you could see them, maybe, maybe for the first time. And there's stuff in here that you're just like, wow, I didn't really know that that would take place. You know, there's some big stuff in there. Um, and, and, and specifically, Isaiah and Ezekiel have a very special place because they give us a lot of the most in-depth detail uh, of the Millennial Kingdom. And so I thought this week we'll look at Ezekiel. Next time we're going to look at a few things in Isaiah. We won't have time to look at all of it. Um, and then, uh, you know, answer some questions and then just keep moving through Revelation. Um, but there is a lot of uh, really good descriptions here. Charles Feinberg. Oh, yeah, I always 
uh, put some things over here that helped me in my study. If you want to take a look at some of these books, uh, I got the, the Glory of God book that Dr. Uh, Greg Harris did through, um, really the second book is just Isaiah, but it just he traces the glory of God through the Bible. The middle book over there is a commentary on Ezekiel by Charles Feinberg. He was a, a Jewish rabbi that became a believer. He was the guy that taught John MacArthur Hebrew uh, over at Talbot. So this is a guy that, you know, MacArthur puts a lot, and he just, just knows a lot about Israel, Judaism, and uh, that's the best. I read three different commentaries uh, through Ezekiel this, this week, and that was one of the simplest and clearest. I'm drawn to very, I like clear and simple, and, uh, and it was just good. So I would point you to him. I listened to a whole sermon series, um, well, the whole, uh, just from 33 to 48, uh, by a guy named Stephen, I'm forgetting again, what? Armstrong. Uh, that Carol told me about. That was very good as well. Again, just the same approach, and he's looking through it, and he's quoting a lot of these same guys. And then you can look at Michael Vlock's uh, He Will Reign Forever. He traces the kingdom from Genesis through Revelation, uh, and uh, it's, it's a very short chapter on Ezekiel. It's not uh, an in-depth thing there, but he does uh, talk about how, you, I mean, Ezekiel's full of kingdom stuff that we need to know. Actually, Charles Feinberg says, he who would discern the meaning of Revelation must pay close attention to the book of Ezekiel. So if you want to know what Revelation is talking about, you need to know Ezekiel because it helps you to understand what God is saying. So real quick background, Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylon to the Jewish exiles during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. There were three waves of attack, 605 B.C., 597, 586 uh, he prophesied from 592 to 570 B.C., and his wife, he and his wife were part of that second deportation in 597. And so he began and ended all of his prophecies in Babylon uh, after being deported from Israel. Uh, he was the same age as Daniel. Him and Daniel were contemporaries in Babylon, both prophesied at the same time. Daniel was next to the king. Ezekiel was with the people. Um, and... Uh, and then Jeremiah was uh, about 20 years older than Ezekiel, and Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem with the exiles that were part of the, the judgment of God there. Uh, if you know anything about the, um, what Jeremiah and Ezekiel said and what God was doing, it was those that were exiled to Babylon that were the ones that, the, the, the remnant that returned, you know, and rebuilt the walls with, um, uh, or was Zerubbabel, rebuilt the temple and the walls by Nehemiah and all that. That was the Babylonian. The, the ones that stayed in, in Judah, uh, they got wiped out. Um, and uh, or, or you know dispersed. So, uh, but anyway, so Ezekiel's up in Babylon, and all these prophecies come out of there. If you look at uh, Ezekiel, a real quick, uh, I mean, this is real quick uh, outline of Ezekiel. Basically, the first twenty-four chapters are all prophecies of Jerusalem's ruin. This is Ezekiel, like I said, in Babylon talking. It's, it's almost like he's a. Uh, you know, like CNN, like the news. You know, God is giving him first-hand declaration of what's happening over in Jerusalem. And he's telling all the refugees there in Babylon what's happening as it's happening because they can't see it, you know. Uh, and then uh, chapters 25 to 32 are prophecies of the judgment of the nations, that God uh, will, will bring judgment on the nations. And most of those things are historic and have happened. Um, in 32, uh, some of it's prophetic future and some of it's historic. And then chapters 33 to 48, generally, I mean, basically, really from 36 on is all future millennial kingdom stuff. But there's, a, there's stuff in 33 through 35 as well that are basically prophecies of Israel's future restoration. And that's where we get all the stuff we're going to talk about today. Um, and so... Uh, Ezekiel, his, his prophecies are in chronological order except for chapter 29. And what, the reason we know that is... 
he says it uh, before before the chapters. He says on on this date and on on you know this year this date. The Lord appeared to me and said these things. Does that make sense? So you can see him go straight through in chronological order as the Lord reveals things to him. The only time it regresses a year is in uh, chapter 29. He actually goes back for a year before chapter 26 and tells us a little stuff there. So, again, not that you have to know that to understand what we're talking about today. But it's, it's just very well laid out, if you want to say it that way, chronological. And even this, the prophecies we're going to talk about today, if you look at them, it looks like this is how these things play out and uh, in, in the millennial kingdom. So, uh, so here's what we're going to do. Like I said, real quick, if you're in Ezekiel chapter 33, basically in chapter 33, the refugees, uh, Israel has been destroyed, or, or the, the, the temple, Jerusalem, Judah's been destroyed, and, and it, it, it's now uh, 585, January 8th, 585 BC. We know that from uh, verse 21. Uh, and this is when the refugees that, that did make it out of uh, Jerusalem, make it to Babylon and give word that the temple's gone, the walls are gone, there is no Jerusalem, we're done. And so at this point, uh, Ezekiel's mouth is open and he begins to prophesy and proclaim. And from this point forward, it's all like I said. I mean, it looks like we're at a place of hopelessness and everything's over. And Ezekiel is going to take the rest of his prophecies to talk about it's not over. In fact, God will do everything that he said he would do. And that's where we get the richness of, of these prophecies. In chapter 34, the first thing he does in the first 10 verses is declare God's judgment on the shepherds of Israel, the human leaders, religious and royal. And basically God talks about uh, all of these shepherds of Israel that have led his people astray and that he will firsthand destroy them. And then look at verse 11. And we're going to read this part because this is so good. In verse 11, God says, I will shepherd my people. God is going to intercept and he himself will be the shepherd of his people. He will lead his people. Look what it says. It says, For thus says the Lord God, and again, remember the context. Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. The throne is gone. No king has sat on David's throne since. And God's people are still to this day scattered around the world, right? And here's what the Lord says as that began. He says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I, the Lord Yahweh, says, I will care for my sheep, and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples, and gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on, mountains of, on the mountains of Israel, by the streams, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them... <clears throat> In a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture and on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy, and I will feed them with judgment. As for you, my flock, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between one sheep and, and another, between the ram and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, and you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures? Or that you should drink the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet, and drink what you foul with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you push with the side and with the shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock 
and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and the other. And look at this. Then, so after this, this judgment, and after he divides, he says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself, and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Very clear. This is, we're talking uh, New Covenant stuff, Davidic Covenant stuff here. And then he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land, so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. So no fear of any enemy, animal or, or human. Uh, and he says, my, uh, my hill, uh, a blessing, or oh, I'm sorry, uh, I will make them and, and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing, and the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and all the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. There's the Abrahamic covenant. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of the yoke, um, their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslave them. They will no longer be a prey to the nations. And the beasts of the earth will no longer or will not devour them, and they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land. They will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Those are part of the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, so that's all fulfilled and completed. He says, Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, speaking to um, the house, he says, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So again, route the gate. He just says, as everything's going away, he's like, firsthand, Yahweh God steps in and says, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to deliver all of them. I'm going to find them all. I'm going to bring them to the land. They're going to dwell securely. I'm going to put David, I'm going to put the, the Jesus Christ, who we know, as king over them. He will rule and reign. I'm going to establish a covenant of peace, which is the new covenant. We'll talk more about that. He's like, everything I said I would do, I'm going to do. I'm going to bring them into the land, just like I told Abraham. They're going to be blessed, just like I told Moses. All the things that I've said I was going to do, I'm going to do. And he does this as they're being destroyed. So Ezekiel 34, full of the promises of God, full of wonderful things that have not happened yet, but must happen. Uh, and they must happen the way he says. And I think that the, 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 the way the Bible answers that is this must happen during the millennial kingdom. Chapter 35 is a future judgment against Edom. There's a lot of Armageddon language in there. That's another story for another day. We mentioned that a little bit when we talked about the, the battle of Armageddon, and I think some of that's going to happen there. It has to do with prophecies of, uh, uh, it's, it's old, old school stuff, Isaac and Esau stuff, and how this plays out during the Millennial Kingdom. Chapter 36 is amazing. I just want to read the whole thing to you, but we just don't have time. <laughs> the, the whole rest of the book. But basically, chapter 36... You see, in a, in a sense, the Lord begins to unveil how he's going to do what he said he would do in 34. 34, he says, I'm going to find my people, gather my flock, bring them back. I'm going to establish them in the land, all that stuff, right? Chapter 36, he begins to talk about how he's going to do this. And this is where you get the, 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 uh, the Lord revealing the new covenant, what he will do uh, himself for the people of Israel. Um, I think uh, if you look at chapter 36, verses 8 through 12, you have a chunk there about what he's going to do. And he's going he's gonna, to, um, uh, uh, the, the, the people of Israel will come back to the land. They're going to be blessed. It's very similar to 34. I want you to go from there and look over at verse 24. 
So again, the Lord is just talking about the mountains of Israel being blessed, the, the, the land being blessed, the people being blessed. And here he, he begins to talk about how this is going to happen. He says he's going to do it for his name. This has nothing to do with Israel being great, Israel being wonderful. This is all for a vindication of his own name to show that he is the holy God that does all the things that he says he will do. This is so the world will know that he is the only God. Um, and so he says, for my name, I'm going to do this. And then in verse 24, he says what he's going to do. And look at this. This is where you highlight and, and circle this and memorize these. These are good verses. He says, for I will take you, Israel, from the nations. I will gather you, Israel, from all the lands. I will bring you into your own land, Abrahamic covenant. And he says, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Actually, I think I put these. I actually do have a slide for this one. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a teachable, moldable, living heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. His spirit being within them and them having new life is what will cause them to obey him. He will make them obey him because he will transform and change them. He says, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. So he's talking about a a reestablished relationship that he has with them. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain to multiply it, and I will not bring a famine upon you. Again, part of the curses of the the old covenant. Uh, I will multiply the fruit of the tree. I'll just keep, it just keeps going. So basically, it talks about their, their mourning over sin their repentance, him giving them a new heart. This is new covenant terminology. He forgives their sins. Again, not because they deserved it, because he just does it. He gives them a new spirit, and it's his own spirit. This is stuff we talk about now, because Christ, we talked about this last week, how he said he will ratify on the cross the new covenant. And we now receive the spirit of God in this current age uh, in the church. Uh, We now have forgiveness of sins, but we have not seen this where he causes all of them to obey him only and to love him only. Jeremiah talks about it a little more, where he talks about uh, writing his word in their heart that they know him, and they don't even have to teach one another because all know him. So we do taste the new covenant. We are partakers of the new covenant. The new covenant has begun, and it began on the cross, but there is more to come. And Israel and Judah will be saved. And actually, if you just keep reading, he talks more about what this will look like uh, here on earth. He's going to turn the, the waste places into like the Garden of Eden. So the things that were the deserts and the, the places that were, uh, had been, uh, you know, uh, received the curse because of the sin of the Israelites will look like Eden, he says. Um, and he will rebuild the ruined places. And he says in verse um, 36, I like this verse. He says, then the nations that are left around you will know I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. So again, when it looks beyond hope and beyond repair and beyond possibility, God just says, just wait. I will do it. And I will make the desert look like Eden. And this, it will be wonderful. All right? So that's 36. Um, Chapter 37, he gives us a picture of the, the national repentance and resurrection of the united nation of Israel. Again, 
At this time, Israel's gone. But even before this time, Israel had been divided for a long time. The last time, you know, Israel was united basically under Saul, David, and Solomon, and that was it. After that, there's been a divided nation, and then it was a destroyed nation, and it, right now, they're, they're gone. They're scattered. There is a, a, a remnant of, of Israelites over in Israel right now, but ha- is, is nothing compared to what the Lord says here in his word of what that would look like. But in chapter 37, and again, this is a really wonderful chapter. You've probably seen it, the whole, the, the, uh, the valley of vision of the dry bones, you know, and the bones come back together and all that. And people talk about this being a, uh, the place to go to to see what the resurrection of the dead will be like. But this is talking, not just like, this is not a description of how God raises the dead. Um, because the Lord will raise the dead many, uh, many times before this. So there's already a first resurrection of the tribulation saints, and there's the, the resurrection of the, the people of God. There's the rapture and all that, where we receive new bodies. And it never talks about sinews growing over. So you don't look at this and look at this as a, this is how the resurrection of the dead will, will transpire. But you definitely look at this and go, first thing, he will, uh, he will redeem Israel, uh, a dead nation that looks like it's impossible for them to be a nation again, he will cause that to happen. And they will rise from the grave for this to happen. So there is resurrection in this. They do rise from the grave. But he is resurrecting the nation as a whole. All his people will be saved. And they will walk into his land, the land that he gave Abraham, on their feet. And I think those are the things you see here. So like I said, in, in Ezekiel 37, God takes Ezekiel out to this desert. In the desert, I'm just going to summarize some of this. He says there was bones out in the desert. They were very dry. They've been dead for a long time. Um, and, 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 and God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? He says, you know. <laughs> I mean, why are you asking me? You're the one that gives life. You know. And, uh, and so uh, God says, I will cause breath to enter these bones. They'll come alive. And so he, uh, he tells Ezekiel to prophesy. So Ezekiel prophesies and it says, basically the bones come together, sinews grow around them, flesh grows over them. Uh, and there was bodies, but there was no breath of life in them. He says, prophesy to the breath. And so he prophesies and the breath of life comes into them. Um, and, uh, and they all came to life and there was a great army. And here's the explanation in verse 11. And then God, Yahweh, says to me, to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Here's, here's the definition of what he just showed Ezekiel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished, both Israel and the, the world. It's impossible for God to do for Israel what he said he would do. And everyone believes it. He says, uh, they, they say we are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, to Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. And I will, here's the new covenant again, put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land, Abrahamic covenant, and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. In other words... Death can't stop him. Time can't stop him. The enemies of God can't stop him. And Israel's disobedience can't stop him. He will save the nation of Israel. And they will walk into the land. And they will dwell on the land and be in the land with him being their shepherd and their king over them during that time. And he will cause them to come out of their graves. Death won't stop him. So, again, right now it just seems like, you know, Babylon has stopped him. And he's like, not only can Nebuchadnezzar not stop this, 
But death itself will not stop me from fulfilling what I swore to Abraham and to David and what I said I would do through the new covenant. It's just an awesome chapter. Uh, He goes on, the rest of 37, to talk about how he's not only going to reestablish what just got destroyed, but the whole nation. The whole, the, all of them, all 12 tribes will be brought together as one nation, and he will be king over the whole nation. Uh, and he and talks about that in the rest of 37. And actually in verse 24, chapter 37, 24, this is another place to circle. He says, and my servant, David, will be king over them. That is Jesus Christ himself, the son of David, who will be king over Israel, the united Israel, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. Your kingdom and your house and your throne will be established forever. My kingdom, house, and throne will be established forever. He says, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances. That's new covenant terminology. And they will keep my statutes and observe them. Again, new covenant terminology. They will live on the land, Abrahamic covenant that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. So a specific piece of land outlined by rivers and and seas. Uh, And he says, and uh, their sons and their sons' sons forever. This is an eternal or a a forever covenant. uh, and And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace, new covenant, with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst. So he's going to dwell with them. And his tabernacle will be there. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And the nation will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. That has not happened. You totally understand that has never happened. And even if you're like, well, I mean, Solomon, the glory of God filled the temple in Solomon's time. Well, this is, this is hundreds of years after Solomon's dead and the Israel is gone. And God is saying very clearly, I will do all that I said I would do and nothing is going to stop me. Apple TV might stop me from showing you the slides. So we'll see what happens here. But the, I just, it's so good. I, like I said, I don't have time to, I wish I could just read it all. Uh, but I don't have time. Michael Vlock says in uh, one of his books, uh, after a period of banishment to the nations, Israel will experience spiritual salvation and restoration to the land of the promise with the context of the new covenant that brings both spiritual and physical blessings. As God accomplishes these things, the nations will know that he is God. God's plan for Israel are spiritual, physical, and national. All three elements are connected with the new covenant. You can't say, well, the physical stuff is over. That's now spiritual. I mean, there, there are physical things that must take place. There are national things that must take place. There are spiritual things that must take place. And they must take place the way that God has said they would. Um, it, actually, uh, it, it, I forgot I had this slide up here too. Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14, if you read that and you talk about the resurrection uh, of the dead. Uh, Romans 11, I think, is a good New Testament. Uh, Paul explaining some of this stuff in the New Testament. We read some of this last week, but look at this real quick. This is some excerpts from Romans 11 just put together uh, so we don't read the whole chapter, but you should read the whole chapter. But it says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Paul's like, God can't reject Israel. He can't do it. It would, it would undermine his character Uh, So God cannot reject his people. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So we're talking about, I mean, this is very Israel language here. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Again, this is not talking about the church. This is talking about Israel. I say then, 
they did not stumble as to fall, did they? So he's saying, basically, did they sin enough that they're, they've, they've fallen out of his graces? He's replaced them with the church, something like that. May it never be. By their transgression, the sin of the, the former Israel, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. That's us now. This is what God's doing through the church. He says, to make them jealous. So he's still focused on Israel. Uh, the, the church should make Israel jealous. The ble- we're receiving the, the promises of the new covenant currently. And they are not. And that should cause the nation of Israel to be jealous. Absolutely, Israelites are being saved through the church right now. But Israelites are being saved through the church right now. There will be a future time for the people of Israel. He says, now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and it is, and their failure is riches to the Gentiles, and it is, he says, how much more will their fulfillment be? So if you think this is great, I mean, them rejecting their Messiah means you and I get to come into these covenant promises and be a part of the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom of God. Well, imagine what's going to happen when they repent. He says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, which is what is happening currently, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Which is what I think Ezekiel is talking about in chapter 37. When they repent and they accept Christ as their Messiah, the one that God sent, the king, David's son who will reign on the throne, then he will return and they will rise from the dead and he will fulfill all these things that he's sworn that he will do. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you'll not be wise in your own estimation. Don't ever think that you're something special and that God's replaced Israel with us. He says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So it's a timing thing. He's saving all of his people from all of the nations currently. And then he says, and so... All Israel will be saved. Those that are on the earth during that time will walk into the kingdom without dying. Those who are dead at that time will rise from the dead and walk into the kingdom alive. And those who are with him, they, or I'm sorry, let me say it this way. They return with him. All of Israel will be saved. The nation as a whole and all of those in Israel who have had faith in the way that he saves all people through all time, they will all be there with him. He will save the nation. He will save the people. He will redeem the, the nation of Israel. And the millennial kingdom is focused on Israel during that thousand years. Just as written in the Deliverer, Jesus Christ will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. New covenant promises after the new covenant has been ratified for the church. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Just good stuff. There's, there's so much there. But that just gives us an understanding of what God will do. He will give them a new heart, a new spirit. He will uh, uh, cleanse them of their sins. And they will rise from the dead. He will redeem the nation of Israel. So, back to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, These are uh, prophecies of Gog, uh, of Magog. So, um, Gog is like a person from Magog, which is uh, a a nation or group of nations that come to fight against the people of God. This this is hard. So, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, Basically, this is a big battle uh, that, that the nations come to fight the people of God. We know that happens at Armageddon. We saw that in Revelation 19, Revelation 11, 16, 19. Uh, we know this also happens at the end of the millennial kingdom because Revelation 20, uh, verses 7 through 10 are going to talk about that. We're going to get into that soon. But here's a little preview of that. So uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 are two of those chapters, like I said, where the camp divides. And people are like, everyone in our camp believes this is going to be literal. This will happen. There will be a battle. Nations will gather to fight against the people of God, and it's going to be during this time, the millennial reign of Christ. 
Really, the, 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 the difference is, does this happen at the beginning of the millennium? Which we would say is that battle of Armageddon. As Christ returns from Edom all the way up to the valley of Megiddo and wipes out everyone. We talked about that, that big bloodbath. And then he comes and reigns on his throne. Is it describing that? Where the birds of the air come and feast on the body of kings and horses and all that stuff we saw in Zechariah and in Joel? Or is this talking about the battle at the end of the millennial kingdom, which we don't have a lot of content on outside of this, but it says in Revelation uh, 7 through 10, Satan is released. He deceives the nations once more. They come to fight against the people of God, and he wipes them out with a fire that comes from heaven. That's all it says. Fire comes from heaven, they're gone. So if you read 38 and 39, and we're not, because there's, I want to move on to the next part. But uh, there, there's terminology of both in here. You got the, I mean, we even quoted Ezekiel 39 when we were talking about the battle of Armageddon, the birds of the air come to feast in the body of the, the people. It talks about the earthquakes which, and, and the, the mountains falling uh, there's a lot of terminology that looks like it's pre-reign of Christ, pre-Zion becoming the established mountain, all that sort of stuff. But there's also stuff in here that makes no sense to me unless it comes to the end of the millennial kingdom. One of the things is that they, they all, let's see, I actually wrote some notes on here. Uh, they all come up and they're fighting against uh, um, Israel, which is the heart of the world, verses 10 through 12, it talks about Israel being the center of the world, the center of the, everyone comes to Israel. It's a, 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 a nation of unwalled villages. There's no need for protection or for walls or anything like that. That would not be pre-Christ reigning. Um, the other thing is they, they fight with very rudimentary weapons. Uh, in fact, there's seven years after this battle, they use the wood that comes from all of the, 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 the swords and the spears and stuff like that to burn uh, as their firewood. Which, again, makes no sense on this side, unless somehow there's a, a, a depletion of all technology and we're back to fighting like that, which is fine. I mean, God can do that during the tribulation if he wants to. It makes a lot of sense, though, that during a thousand years of peace on earth and Christ reigning as king, where there is no war and there is no battles, that that would be a time where you know, there, there, would, there would be no weapons on earth because there's no need for weapons on earth. There's, there's, the, there's the animal kingdoms at peace with the human kingdom. There's, there's peace on earth with Christ reigning. And so at the very end, when these things are in their minds, it actually says that this stuff comes into the minds of Gog and, and the people. And then, you know, and then if that couples together with the releasing of Satan, that, that he decide, you know, that, that becomes the spiritual force behind the regathering of the nations and they come to fight him. I don't know. I mean, in the end, It definitely does, and and it could even be this. We know when it comes to prophecies about Christ that sometimes you'll read a prophecy about Christ, half of this has happened at the first coming, but the other half hasn't happened. That has to happen in the second coming. So this could be a foretelling both of Armageddon and the final millennial battle, and it, it, because both of them have a leader that gathers all the nations to fight the people of God in Jerusalem. That's for sure. And so whether it's Armageddon or Gog, Magog, I don't know. But I land, I think it's a lot more the, the end of Revelation, the end of the millennial kingdom. There's a lot of terminology in here that has to do that with that. But like I said, there are almost direct quotes from Isaiah and Jeremiah, Zephaniah, uh, Joel, and Zechariah, which are definitely Armageddon language. So anyway, but the point being is it, we know for sure twice, before the thousand years and after the thousand years, that a leader gathers the nations to try to destroy the people of God, and both times God wipes them out. In, in uh, Armageddon, 
Christ returns, and like we already talked about that, the bloodbath that you know, goes for 200 miles, and then he reigns on his throne. At the end of the Millennial Kingdom, we're going to read about that in Revelation, and we'll probably come back and read some of this then. Uh, the fire comes from heaven and destroys everyone that's out on the great plain that's come to fight the people of God, and they're all, they're all done. So Ezekiel 38 and 39 talk about those, those battles, if you want to say it that way. Uh, and the whole point is that God's going to protect his people, uh, and nothing will stop him from these promises. Uh, there's Revelation 20. We'll talk about that soon. I'm going to keep moving because this next part is super cool. Okay, So the next part is Ezekiel 40 through 42. In Ezekiel 40 through 42, there are detailed descriptions of both the size, the, 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 the interior, exterior, the decoration. There's, a, there's a, a temple that must be built, that must exist during the millennial reign of Christ. There are priests in the temple. There are sacrifices in the temple during this time. And, and there's details on even how that's to take place. It's, it's insane. All right, so look, look at some of this stuff. <laughs> it, this is the part that you just read and you're like, wait a minute. I thought Christ was the great high priest and I thought the sacrifices were done. Absolutely, they are. And there will be a Levitical system and the priests of Zadok must be there. The priestly covenant has to be fulfilled and there will be sacrifices. And those both land perfectly in the mind of God. And you and I can just dig and try to wrap our minds around it. It goes back to what Shane just said over there. There's things that you're like, but how? And it's just like, just trust him. I mean, he has to do what he says he's going to do. And you can read it with your own eyes. And I don't care if you believe me or not. You toss what I say out the window. Go read it yourself and dig out the word of God yourself. It's, it's, there's, and like I said, I can't, I can't sit here and tell you I know all of exactly what this will be. But, but I do trust that he will do everything that he says he'll do. So there has to be a temple. So anyway, so um, what we see here is very precise detail regarding the measurements of the temple, the decorations of the temple. Uh, there, it is clearly a literal, physical building that must be built on this earth. It must host the glory of God. Uh, it has to um, have, um, in the same manner, actually, as the Old Testament does, in the sense that the glory of God comes and dwells uh, in the most holy place. And, and the precision is so great that architects and Bible scholars have actually mapped out. I mean, you can, I looked up a few things. I mean, there's... This is from uh, uh, Logos Bible Software, uh, taking the actual measurements of from Ezekiel and saying this is the temple will look something like this. I mean, it, it gives detailed descriptions uh, and even tells you the size of the cubit. It's measured by cubits, but it says it's a cubit and a handbreadth. And then it talks about the pole being six of those cubits, which tells you it's, it's basically roughly in English twenty four a twenty four or a twelve foot pole, right? A twelve foot pole, twenty four inches. Um, and that he uses all this to measure. So you can take it and you can measure it out and kind of craft out what it looks like this temple will be. And so there's one version of it. Uh, this is the, the perimeter of it. It kind of gives you a, a, a view that obviously this temple has never been built. Uh, the, there's the tabernacle over here. Actually, this is, I like this because it kind of gives you a, a, this is a huge temple that's built. But you've got the tabernacle, the size of the tabernacle um, from Exodus you got the temple of God, of Yahweh, that Solomon built you know, during his reign. And then you got the temple of Yahweh that Zerubbabel began and then Herod added to during his time. And this temple is very different. Very, I mean, a lot of the same elements, but way different size and, and a whole different place. In fact, 
the size of this temple wouldn't fit on the temple mount that's over there now. Which means, again, God's got to do what he says he's going to do, right? Level the buildings, raise Zion. He's going he's to geographically alter Israel so he can put his temple there because it wouldn't fit where uh, uh, the temple of Solomon or a Herod's temple. I don't like calling them Solomon's temple and Herod's temple. They were Yahweh's temple. It's always been Yahweh's temple. He just used these dudes to build it, right? <laughs> but like, uh, anyway, so his temple in the future is going to be much different. And like I said, we're not going to read all of it. You can go read it yourself. It's a lot of measurements. Uh, he, uh, he takes this angel, that, that which I think uh, maybe Christ, I believe it is Christ, that walks Ezekiel around and measures this temple out for him. And like I said, it's very, very precise. Um, if you look over in, actually, I got a few quotes here just from dudes that are smarter than me. Uh, Michael Vlock says, just as sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant were a typological pointing forward to Christ's ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifices described in Ezekiel's temple could be retrospective, drawing attention to Christ's completed sacrifice. So that makes a lot of sense. We'll talk about that in a second. Since Revelation 21 says there will be no temple in the eternal state, the kingdom temple must be fulfilled in the millennium. So there is no temple. If you read Revelation 21, 22, uh, in the new heavens and new earth, this has to happen before that. Charles Feinberg says it this way, and I thought this, was, this is a good thing to wrap your mind around before we start talking about sacrifices, right? Uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper through the Christian centuries has added not one infinitesimal particle to the efficacy of the work of Christ on the cross. In other words, every time we do the Lord's Supper, we're not saying Christ is being re-sacrificed. We're not saying this is more added to it. We're just, it's a, it's a, it reminds us of the perfect sacrifice that has happened, and that's why we do it, and the Lord has called us to do that. He says, uh, but who will dare to deny that it has value for the believer since it is enjoined upon us as a memorial? Christ tells us to do this. Uh, he says, just as the Lord's Supper now detracts not one iota from the glory of the work of Calvary, but rather has been a constant memorial of it for over 1,900, you can say over 2,000 years at this point. So the sacrifices of the millennial age will be powerless to diminish the worth of the Savior's death on Calvary, but will rather be a continuous memorial of it for 1,000 years. Just think of it that way. Um, half the time allotted to us already for the memorial of the central fact of history, the cross. Recall that since Israel did not receive their Messiah in his first coming, they have never celebrated a memorial of his redeeming work. I think if you start there, you're like, oh, okay. So it helps you to see, just like in the Old Testament, those sacrifices in the Old Testament, I mean, go read Hebrews, right? The blood of bulls and goats did nothing to save them from their sins. They pointed them to the one that would, the sacrifice that would, Jesus Christ. But when he came, they, they rejected him. They denied him. All of those things that should have pointed them to him, they, they, they didn't get it, right? And so, and then he died on the cross for our sins for 2,000 years now. We've been remembering that, the, the, the thing that we, uh, the physical celebration or memorial we have for that is the Lord's Supper. And so it, he's basically saying, during the millennial time, there's going to be a temple. During the, that time, there's going to be priests, and they're going to be making sacrifices, all those sacrifices in the same way that we take the cup and the bread and we remember what Christ has done because of the words that he said, this is what God has told Israel to do during the millennial kingdom to remember what Christ has done during that time. So then you start asking yourself, why? Well, those are the good questions. You know, why? I mean, and we can answer some of that, but the main, the main answer to that, why? Because God said so. God said there will be sacrifices, and God says which priests will do it, and he tells them what to do, and he even tells them the festivals to celebrate and the days to go up and do the sacrifices. So the reason there are going to be sacrifices is God has said there will be, and that's just, that's kind of the bottom line. 
And, and, uh, but, then, you know, why would there be? I think that th- this is probably the best answer to that. Because it'll be a, mem- a memorial for Israel that sin was so heinous and bad that Christ had to come and die for their sins. And that's the only reason they're a nation now. That's the only reason. All this, all this around them is they live during that millennial kingdom. And those sacrifices will remind them over and over and over of the death of Christ. That they are saved by his grace through faith. In the same way that we are currently. Does that make sense? And I, I thought this was a really neat point too. If you think about that time, Christ is reigning on earth as king. Uh, there's, there's peace on earth. There's a, it's very different than now. There won't be rampant sin. There will be rampant blessing. Uh, uh, there will be, there'll be um, you know, even the nations of the earth will be blessed by what's happening in Jerusalem, by the king that's reigning in Jerusalem. It could be easy for people. And, and think about this. There are going to be people that are alive during that time that can still die, that, that have not you know, returned together with Christ and have immortal bodies like you and I will be if we believe in him. And so they will still have to be saved by the same grace, through the same faith that both Noah and Adam and Moses and Abraham and everyone else has been saved by, right? And during that time, it might be easy to forget the heinousness of your sin to forget that you still must have faith to be saved and to be indwelt by his spirit. And those sacrifices would continually remind people during that time of what Christ did on the cross. So again, like I said, there's a lot of questions, but if you just go read it, he's very detailed. Like I said, with the sacrifices in chapter 40, look at chapter 40, starting in verse 38. You got a chamber with a doorway, side pillars of the gates. There they rinse the burnt offerings because some, I've heard someone say before, well, it's just going to be like peace offerings and grain offerings or free will offerings during this time. It's not like, but I mean, he, there, there will be bloody offerings for sin and for guilt. That's right here. There's going to be burnt offerings. There's the sin offering, the guilt offering in verse 39. Then in verse 42, you got the slaughter of the sacrifices for the burnt offering. There's four tables for the sacrifices. There's, a, there's an altar where the priest will go up and offer the sacrifices. Verse 44 uh, you got the, I'm sorry, verse 46. Uh, you got the priests who keep charge of the altar where the sacrifices will be. These are the sons of Zadok. This is the priestly covenant stuff we talked about from the sons of Levi that come near to minister to him. Uh, they measure out the temple um, and, uh, or measure out the altar there. If you go on to 41, uh, he, he takes them into the, the most holy place where, where, where Christ is, where the glory of God dwells, which again is oh, something. <laughs> Something else to talk about, that, that he dwells within the Holy of Holies. It's not like Christ is roaming around everywhere. I mean, that's, you know, kind of, you think, well, I mean, it's, he's, but he's in the Holy of Holies. And only the priests, only the priests from Zadok can go into the Holy of Holies and approach him. And, and, and they are not, they're never called the high priest. He's still the high priest. He is the king. He's in the Holy of Holies. But only certain Levites can approach him and do these sacrifices. It says the rest of the Levites, if you keep reading over in chapter 42, you got the Zadokian priests. But then you also have the rest of the Levites that he does bless and they, they do things for him. I'm sorry, that's actually in 44. I'm getting ahead of myself. But they can't, they can't be the ones that come into the Holy of Holies. They're outside doing other work. And the Zadokian priests are the only ones that can come in with these sacrifices. But all that being said... I mean, you wrestle with it yourself, but there's going to be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. There are going to be blood sacrifices, guilt sacrifices, sin sacrifices, peace sacrifices, and grain sacrifices as well. There are going to be Levites doing the Levitical work that he's called them to do. And by the way, these things are different than the Mosaic stuff. There's some of the same sacrifices, but they're done in different ways. There's some of the same priesthood qualifications, but they're done by different priests. 
Um, and so it's not the same. This isn't just the Mosaic Covenant rehashed. This is a new thing in the Millennial Kingdom for the people of Israel. And the Levites have a part in it. And they must because he promised them that back in Numbers 25. But there's also uh, one branch, the, the Zadokian priests, that are able to come in. And I just got to keep moving. But you just go chew on that and read and learn. But the Millennial Kingdom, this is what the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ will be like. So there will be, a, there will be a, um, a temple, there will be sacrifices. And then look at this, and this is one of the coolest things. And the glory of God will dwell in this temple. That has not happened since, since Ezekiel's time. If you go read in Ezekiel 8 through 11, Ezekiel gives a very clear description of the glory of God leaving the temple in stages and finally going to the Mount of Olives and then it's gone. And the glory of God has never, ever, ever come back. When Zerubbabel rebuilt that temple, the glory of God did not dwell in that temple. It never dwelt in that temple. The only time the glory of God came into that temple was when Jesus Christ walked into it physically as a human being. But the glory of God never dwelt in the Holy of Holies uh, in the temple that was there when Jesus himself went into the temple. That hasn't happened since Solomon's temple, if you want to say it that way. But it will happen in the Millennial Temple. And chapter 43 talks about it. It says, he led me to the gate. The gate was facing the, north, or facing the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming in by the way of the east, the same way that he left. Like I said, go read Ezekiel 8 through 11, and you can see how he leaves, and he returns in the same way. And his voice was the sound of many waters. The earth shone with his glory. Um, if, and he says it was like the other visions that he had. In verse 4, he says, The glory of God came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And then he goes on to talk about how this is the place where my throne will be. Uh, verse 7, he says, Son of man, this is my, the place of my throne. So guess who this glory is? This is Christ. This is Christ dwelling in the millennial temple as the king and the great high priest forever. He says, and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. This is amazing. Christ in his glory dwelling in the house of God. He says, in the house of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Uh, he keeps going uh, verse into verse 9, I will dwell among them forever. Um, and, and he even says, he, he says the reason, and after that he says, the reason I've given you all this detailed description of the millennial temple is, uh, look at verse 10. Uh, Describe this temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of this house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all the designs, all its statutes, all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe it its whole design and all its statutes and do them. So this is written for the future repentance of the nation of Israel. They should read this and it should crush them. This is what their Lord wants for them. And this is what he will do for them. Read Ezekiel, Israel, and repent. When you repent, he will return. And it's just such a, I mean, it's, that's why it's written. And so anyway, just good stuff. And then he talks about the uh, sacrifice and the altars again. Uh, and then we're going to keep moving. All right. So anyway, uh, just, just again, this is just to give you a glimpse uh, of, of things that happen in the millennial kingdom. I got like three minutes, so let's move fast. Then he talks about the prince and the priests. All right. There's going to be a prince. The prince is not Jesus. All right. 
Uh, the prince is also not a resurrected David, which I think some people do believe this is like David himself risen from the dead, and he is the prince because he calls his name David. The only problem is, is if you keep reading about this prince, this prince has to make the same sacrifices as all the other people do uh, that, that are part of the people of Israel. The, this prince has a land inheritance, which all the other people of Israel do that are living during this time. This prince has sons, and he distributes his inheritance amongst his sons, which I, I believe uh, insinuates that he's married, which again would not be a resurrected, immortal, eternal David. So I believe this is a prince, probably one of the sons of David or from the line of David, that is God chooses this man to be the prince of his people, though Christ is still the king. Just like the Zadokian priest will be priest for his people to do the sacrifices, though he is still the great high priest. So you see how both of those can, could take place. Christ never, he, he's going to be on the throne forever. He is the son of David, the, the Davidic line that is the eternal king. But there will be a prince, if you read in uh, chapter 40, uh, 44 and 46, it talks a lot about the prince and what the prince does, the offerings and sacrifices the prince will make, uh, the anointed feast that the prince will lead, the gate where the prince will sit. Uh, he's with the people. He's not Christ himself. But there is a prince that reigns during that time. If you look at chapter 44, starting in verse 15, you see a lot about the Levitical priests. Uh, it talks about who the priests are, how they're going to be clothed, what they're going to dress like, how they'll come near to him, which line will come near and which line will be outside, uh, the laws that they will keep. The feasts, the point of feasts of God are brought back. A lot of these feasts from Leviticus 3 are brought back. Uh, you got the, the, um, the feast of uh, Passover is mentioned in verse 21. Uh, the feast of tabernacles is mentioned in verse 25. We also see the feast of tabernacles in Zechariah 14 during the millennial kingdom. Uh, so this is, these are feasts that point to uh, the future and will be practiced during that time. The day of atonement is not mentioned. Um, uh, and uh, Pentecost is not mentioned. It doesn't mean that there won't be a Pentecost, uh, but there may not be. I don't know. It just doesn't mention that here. Um, and that could just be because Pentecost points to the church and all that, and that time is over, and this is about Israel. All that being said, if you look at 44, 46, you see a lot about the priests, a lot about the prince, and what their functions will be during this time. And these are Israelites that are not Jesus that are doing jobs of ruling and reigning and religious stuff during that time. They all point to Christ, uh, but this is the time where they, uh, yeah, that, that stuff's just going to happen here on this earth in the land of Israel. One last thing, um, there also is this. this is, there's land divisions that he lays out, two, two last things, land divisions. First thing, in chapter 45, he lays out a land division that is a holy piece of land in the midst of Israel, where the prince will be, where the Holy of Holies and the temple will be, uh, where there will be fields uh, of, of produce and things like that. Um, and then if you look at chapter 48, he divides all of the land of Israel amongst the, uh, I know I'm hopping around now, but I'm just trying to sum it all up. Uh, he names all the, the, the 12 tribes of, of uh, Israel. Well, Levite doesn't have a land. Actually, Levite does have a land uh, allotment. Uh, in the holy place, if you read in verse uh, 8, but it's not part of the, the named tribes. But the named tribes, uh, and he actually uh, talks about the, the, the width. I mean, again, people have mapped out what they think that this land will look like and the division of the land, starting with Dan, going down to Gad. Benjamin and Judah are right around the holy place, which is in the middle there. But people have mapped it out because he uses uh, the Dead Sea and the Great Sea and the Jordan River and some of the, the, the name places of the Old Testament to kind of say this is where it's going to be. So again, it's a physical land. It's the land that God gave to Abraham, and this will be the land of Israel. 
But let me, let me point out one last thing, and this is cool. Chapter 47. There's this river that comes out of the throne of God, and it heals the earth. And this is cool, because the earth is destroyed, right? When Christ, I mean, tribulation destroys the earth, it's uninhabitable. God actually says, you know, if I hadn't shortened those days, no one would survive. Uh, and so for this earth to be inhabitable, for this millennial kingdom to take place, there has to be a healing of the earth. Now, Christ has talked about that himself, uh, and, and uh, there are other prophecies in Isaiah that talk about this. But there's a cool description here. Read chapter 47 with me. Not the whole thing. But he says, Then he brought me back to the door of the house. Uh, behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house. The house is the temple, the millennial temple. Towards the east. Uh, for the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under the right side of the house, uh, uh, from south of the altar where the sacrifices are made. And it says, And he brought me out by way of the north gate, uh, and led me around uh, on the outside of the outer gate, by the way of the gate that faces east and, beho- east. and behold, water was trickling from the south side. So it comes out as a trickle. It's like a little spring that comes from the throne of God. And it trickles out of, of, of Jerusalem. And it says, And then he brought me out. Um, I'm sorry. And then the man went out towards the east with a line in his hand. He measured a thousand cubits. And he led me through the water. And the water was reaching the ankles. So this, this river is increasing, but it's not because the tributary is coming into the river. It's just, it's just growing. It comes out of the throne like a trickle, and it just grows, and it gets bigger and wider and deeper. And then it says, and again, he measured a thousand, led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, I uh, measured a thousand, led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand, a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen enough, you know, water to swim in, in a river that could not be forded. And it goes on to talk about, there's many trees on the sides of these rivers. It says in verse 8, these waters go out towards the eastern region. They go out to the Araba, which is the desert. And then they go out towards the sea, being made to flow into the sea, speaking of the the Dead Sea, and it says the waters of the sea will become fresh, and it will become about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river grows will live, or goes will live. There will be many fish, for these waters will go there, and, and the others become fresh. So everything will live wherever the river goes. Everything died during the tribulation, and now wherever this river goes, everything lives. It goes into the Mediterranean Sea, and it comes alive. It goes into the Dead Sea, and it becomes alive. It goes through the desert, and, and things grow, and it produces fruit year-round. And it says, now come about that the fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Ingalum. Those are both name places on the Dead Sea. So, I mean, the Dead Sea is dead right now. It's so salty. I mean, there's no fishermen there. And he's saying they're going to be fishing, and there's going to be an abundance of fish. Wherever this river goes, it makes life. Uh, and it says they'll be spreading their nets. Fish will be according to their kinds. Fish, um, like the fish in the Great Sea, very many. Uh, and then it talks about swamps and marshes that are still salty. And that could, you know, we don't know exactly why, but that could be just for, I mean, if it, we still need salt. <laughs> you know, it's a... Uh, uh, for sacrifices and just for, for things. And then it talks about the trees and the food on the trees. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. In other words, it's always producing fruit wherever this water goes. They will bear every month because the water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be the food and their leaves will be leaves of healing. So again, this is, like, like, this is tree of life terminology. Wherever this river goes, it makes life. It brings life, dead back to life and it creates trees that give life. And so again, part of everlasting life may be all of us eating from the tree or the people, you know, we know from Isaiah that people live long periods of time during that time and they probably have to eat from these trees, from the trees that the water of life feeds and grows for that, that longevity of life. Anyway, I, there's just, like I said, many things that I don't know, but many things to wrestle with and many things that give you a glimpse. None of this has happened. You know that. Historians know that. No one's ever seen any of this stuff. 
and it has to happen. But there's still the potential for death. There's still the potential for uprising and war. There's still the potential for uh, disobedience. There's still the potential for famine. And, and there's a lot of things in here, which means this is not the new heavens and the new earth. This is a time before that, before the el- complete elimination of sin, but a time where the earth is very different, where Christ is reigning on earth. And like I said, I think this is just a, you know, a few chapters here that tell us about the millennial kingdom that are just awesome and amazing that make you rejoice and look forward to it and they solidify in your mind that Jesus Christ will do everything that he said he will do Yahweh God will accomplish all that he said he will do and nothing will stop him uh, from his plan so let me pray for us Father thank you so